You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. What's up, Res? Good to be with you this morning, this fourth week of Lent. Everybody's still alive? I know we put things aside we didn't think we could live without, and here we are. Four weeks into fasting, and we made it. This is good. Well, we are also in the fourth week of a series we're doing uh, throughout Lent called In Search of the Good Life. The good life that we have seen isn't like the American dream. Let me just clarify some things. We're not talking about the American dream. It's not even a life where you get everything you've ever wanted. It's not that kind of good life. It's the truly good life, like the real deal good life, the actual life that you desire that you may not know you desire deep in your bones. It's a life that the world cannot understand, they cannot understand if they can even see it. Because to the world, this good life that we've been talking about is a life that is characterized to the world as something that's totally foolish, totally weak, something that's maybe even unbelievable. So it's hard to wrap our head around. It's hard to find this good life that we've been talking about. It really is hard for some. It's even hard for me. And that's why in Lent, we've set aside this entire season to just search for it together in community. Putting aside some of the clutter in our lives, some of the medication that we take, drugs, sex, alcohol, entertainment, consumerism, you name it. All of the stuff that is our go-to we're setting that aside in this season because we want something better. Our souls hunger for something so much more. So we're looking for it in the season of Lent. And when we pursue this good life, we actually, we don't have to do it by wandering around in the desert, but we actually have a guide. We have a tour guide, someone who's actually saying, I am the way to the good life. And so we follow him. And what's really peculiar is when we respond to this guide that we have, we find that there's a life for us in him that is actually fulfilled. It's genuinely satisfying. It's good. It's beautiful. It's true. Y'all, it's a life where we can finally be at peace. Our shoulders can kind of take a rest. Ah, you can almost kind of taste it even now. Oh, that's the good life. This life that Jesus makes present for us when we respond to his invitation. Come and see. Come with me. That's the good life. This morning, I want to consider how the good life is made right when things go wrong, which is, to be honest, like, let's be honest here. Things go wrong all the time, and we don't keep the good life maybe the way we ought to be keeping the good life all the time. Somehow we lose the good life. So how do we make things right when things go wrong. And our psalm that you all, by the way, so beautifully chanted this morning. I'm so proud of y'all. It's so much fun. I love it. Maybe I'm the only one having fun with that, but I love it. Uh, but way to go. This psalm that we chanted together, the singing that we did this morning, um, it actually uh, leads us into some of the answers of, of how do we make the good life right again when it's gone wrong, when we've made things wrong. The psalmist talks about um, blessedness. You remember this part, verse one, it says, happy. It's so much lost in that word, happy. But we get the idea. Happy or blessed or fortunate. How fortunate are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is put away? Verse 2, happy are they to whom the Lord imputes no guilt and in whose spirit there is no guile. Translation, in other words, 
Maybe you could just even understand that as it is. The blessed life, that fortunate life, that, oh, happy are you. If things go this way for you, when you get a fresh start, I think we can all relate to that. Have you ever um, needed to like start over with someone, with a relationship? Or maybe you've like made a mess of things in your life or at a job or, you know, you found like the dream woman and then you totally screwed it up and you're like, ah, I just need a fresh start. Happy are those who actually get that fresh start, right? Where the slate is wiped clean. Some of us do this by like, moving to a new place when no one knows you or going to a new church where no one knows your dirt. Um, but that's actually a cheap way of doing that. You don't actually, because you'll end up finding that dirt again. What do you do then? You just keep moving around and not actually being connected with people. But happy are they who don't just medicate or fake a clean start, but in whom God has actually given a fresh start, who has actually wiped away your guilt. Happy are those people that God holds nothing against, who've been set free. Happy are those people who have a burden on their soul and so they hide from God because maybe he won't see it if they're not around. We've heard that story in the Bible before. And he always finds us. Happy are they when God actually finds them and then they deal with that thing, that stuff. Because when we actually can deal with it, there's, we find surprisingly freedom. There's a lightness. To having it all out there, just putting it all out on the table, we have an opportunity now to make things right, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with others, to be honest with God, and to let him settle all of this darkness, all of this debt for us. Um, let me just give you an illustration that maybe applies to some of you. If you've got student loans like me, can you imagine the day when you don't have student loans? Oh, Lord, that's going to be amazing. Or maybe you're paying off a car. Can you happy are they who paid off their car? I've seen it, Right? You can totally relate to that. What a good day it'll be when your accounts are settled, when your mortgage is paid off, when you've, uh, when you've dug yourself out of the credit card debt you're in. Happy is the day when you are like level again and accounts are settled, even more so. Consider this, just thought experiment. The debts that our rebellion against the good purposes of God throughout our whole life, that we've racked up throughout the years, Whoa, that's a lot more than a student loan with a terrible interest rate. That's like, now we're talking about the condition of our soul for eternity. We've racked up this debt because of our rebellion, our resistance from the good ways of God. Even maybe this week, we've dug ourselves some holes. Under that weight, even if you don't notice it, we may tell ourselves, no, it's not really there, it's okay I'm a good person, we're good, right, we're all good. We say these things to ourselves, but inside our souls are super burdened, they're heavy, and our souls, they, they like rot away, even over, even while we're telling ourselves these sweet little things that may not be so true about us. This is just how humans do things. We, we run, we hide, we try and like medicate the debt that we have, not noticing that actually we just got to deal with this at some point, folks. We can't pour alcohol all over it. We can't hide it in some new relationship that's really going to fulfill us, some job or some more of a paycheck. We have to actually deal with the thing itself, that deeper, more serious need. You notice this um, in my life. I notice this when I start biting my nails. I'm like, oh, what's up, Sean? You're nervous or something. Something's cooking. What's going on? It's not about the nails, something else. Or when I start organizing my books in my library or like cleaning my desk, it's just a way of like me not wanting to do something right? 
you can kind of see it and you can notice it like, whoa, what's up? Or when I start yelling at my kids, okay, Sean, you got to take time out. Like what's happening right now? These are like some of my signals. And you may have some of your own signals where you need to pause and say, okay, what's under the surface here? What's, what's this all about? Often in that moment, instead of asking that deeper, more costly, more humbling question, we turn to drinking or shopping or getting busy hanging out with friends. But if you think about it, and this is what Lent, this is the secret of Lent, if you really want to enter into Lent, that's like mowing your front yard while your house is burning, turning to those things. You're not actually dealing with the issue, you're just kind of moving on to something else, hoping that it all sorts out and it doesn't sort out. And the worst thing, listen, the worst thing you can do when you have this problem, this sin, this burden, this debt in your life, the absolute worst thing you can do is stay quiet about it, to bury it, because this kills us silently. Listen to the psalmist in verse three. While I held my tongue, while he was silent, my bones withered away because of my groaning all day long. And he's speaking about the Lord. For your hand was heavy upon me day and night. Have you ever felt that heavy hand of God haunting you, loaded up on your shoulders, lovingly but still present? Well, in Old Testament spirituality, when things go quiet, things are not good. Like, old tells, oh, like the Jewish folks, they don't stay quiet. Even when it's awful or when it's awesome, they're going to speak up. They're going to make some noise. They're going to wail or they're going to sing. They're going to do something. But it's not normal for the people of God to be quiet. The last thing you want to do is stay quiet. Like in the garden, think of this. Remember Adam and Eve when they had sinned? They hid. They were quiet. And God said, well, where did you go? Where are you? Or when someone full of shame wants to run from the Lord or someone is called uh, to be a prophet and says, forget that, I'm, I'm going to hide somewhere else. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm not going to speak the words of God. Not me, Lord. Maybe you can relate to this kind of a moment when in doubt, when you have this kind of doubt of faith, instead of talking to God about the cracks that are showing up in your weak faith, you stay silent. You keep quiet. You bury it. You don't deal with the doubt. And eventually what happens is that doubt will come back to eat your lunch. It will like overrun you. So you don't need to be afraid of that, but you can actually look at it, deal with it. Or maybe in sin, you keep quiet and then shame, the shame of your sin begins to drive the boat, right, in your life. And you, begin to, you get overpowered by the shame and you're, you begin managing the shame and hiding in places and not being honest with people or with yourself. And you become somebody else and it's really unhealthy, really ugly. There starts to be a heaviness on your soul. Maybe that heaviness is the hand of God, like the psalmist talks about. His hand was heavy upon me day and night. And that hand, that, that burden, you know, it's actually something, it's provoking us to not stay silent, to make us so miserable that we'll finally go, fine, I'll say something, I'll speak up. Sometimes avoiding Sunday. I'm not looking at anybody. I'll keep my, pay, my eyes on the page. Sometimes avoiding Sunday morning is a way of keeping quiet. It's not like we wake up and go, you know what? I, I got sin. I'm not going to go to church. I'm just going to stay home. That's my way of keeping quiet. No, we don't think that way. It's not like that. It's just easier to neglect God's presence, neglect God's people, neglect hearing the word of God preached to us. 
It's a way for us to, instead of deal with our stuff and make things right before God, we can just kind of keep it quiet, keep it under control, keep it within. And we don't even notice it because often our comforts, they're so powerful. Um, They lead us into these little corners, these little spaces in which we can keep our faith private into ourselves and just keep God out of our lives because we've got some stuff we have to deal with us. But these comforts, they lead us into not really corners, but just kind of cutting corners actually especially with things like our Lenten disciplines. I mean, I've been around, I hear Lent. I mean, trust me, it's, these narratives are in my own life, I hear it. Well, I'm, making, I'm, I'm fasting from this, but I'm gonna make this one exception just because this one thing. I mean, that's not a really big deal, right? No big deal, it's just, just one thing. Or I'm just gonna, I, I, you know what, it's just so hard, I can't do this anymore. Yo, I get it, trust me, I get it. Lent is hard. And I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm not going to be like, I'm not checking on anybody. This is not just, it's just a blanket thing. I feel like I'm poking fun at everybody, but I'm not. Let's be honest. You picked these disciplines in prayer with God when Lent began as a way to respond to his invitation to grow, right? Like you picked these. I didn't give these to you. And so when we find ourselves adjusting or accommodating, we got to ask ourselves a much more interesting question below this. Are we trying to hide? Are we trying to avoid the discomfort of living without this thing, even for that great occasion or that, that one moment or that just that weakness of, of craving? Are we trying to hide? Does giving into that allow our souls to stay quiet? Does it medicate us to just quiet our souls a bit when all along our souls need to speak up? Our souls need to make some noise? Even if we're angry and we want to throw a fit, at least speak up and throw a fit. But to bury it is the opposite direction of health in our relationship with God. Another thought experiment. What if for the rest of Lent, instead of finding corners to cut in those ways, we allowed our disciplines, the the discomfort of them and the costliness, the sacrifice of our disciplines, what if we allowed it to induce a real lament in us? Like a real honest one, not like, oh, Lord, I'm hungry for this and you know my, my soul hungers for you. But like, Lord, I really hate Lent. I really hate having to give this up. I don't know if this is doing anything. I don't know if this is just like what Anglicans are supposed to do. I get it, but this is super irritating, God. Even that is more of an honest prayer than just giving in or medicating it for a moment? What if we allowed our disciplines to induce that real lament? And what if we allowed, I think, our our disciplines, that discomfort to provoke real praise to God? Lord, you have set me free from this thing. I'm I'm gonna speak up, make some noise about how grateful I am that you've helped me. You've helped me grow in this way or you've set me free from this thing. Lent isn't on our terms for good reason. We don't get to dictate how it goes. Lent is super inconvenient. It gets in our ways of our plans. It disrupts everything that we think is like so wonderful about our arrangements. It kind of rattles our whole cage. It's not meant to be super comfortable, friends, but that's okay. Don't make exceptions. Don't make excuses. Don't weasel your way out of Lent, but instead speak up to God. That's the whole point, that we would acknowledge that God is actually in this thing and speak up. Don't let your bones wither away in your silence. 
Don't hold your tongue, but speak up. Even if your body hates it, your soul needs to speak up to God. The psalmist finally realizes this, which is often the last thing that I realize to do. Like, oh, maybe I should pray about this. Um, I'm slow, but this, this psalmist gets it. By verse five, he gets it. Usually it's like verse 15 for me. But let me read this to you. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, the Lord, and did not conceal my guilt. Verse six, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Check this out. Then you forgave me the guilt of my sin. He confesses, speaks up. Sometimes silent confession in our head or in our hearts is actually not good enough either, and you know it. Sometimes we need to say the thing aloud. Try praying out loud. It's actually different than praying in your head. Or sometimes when you've hurt someone or something's wrong, you need to say it to another person in real life, right? You actually have to really speak up. Sometimes we just need to confess it to God aloud. Or even like in sacramental confession that we do through Lent every Sunday morning. It can be so uniquely freeing and relieving to speak up to actually make some noise when we pray to God. Sometimes we need to do that. Complain to God aloud, lamenting, crying out in our anguish. And check this out. God doesn't need your protection from your prayers. You may say something really stupid and God will still exist. And you know, like, you probably won't hurt his feelings. I don't know. I think he's a big boy. He can handle our lament. He can handle our complaining. We don't have to defend him. We don't have to put on kitty gloves and say, well, but this is how I'm supposed to. Just be honest. Make some noise. Spill it out of yourself and then let God deal with what's really there. And when you do, and this could be terrifying to do. Trust me, I know. When you do this, though, you immediately realize you're entering in a new territory. This is a new space of life here where the insides are now on the outsides and everything's out in the open. Everything's on the table. And when it's all out on the table, now you can deal with this with God. But here's the thing. It's really no different. God knew what was on the inside all along, but he waits for us to put it out for him to deal with with us. Does that make sense? He knows what's there. Why not just offer it to him anyways? And when you do, that, that heavy hand becomes a supportive, gentle hand. You enter into this new territory of the kingdom of God where you can now make your home. You can live in this space where you're open with God, lamenting and praising, being honest. You don't have to have any secrets. And now the reign of God rests on your shoulders and guides your life the way you've always wanted God to guide you. Shame, guilt, those aren't driving factors anymore. They're not running the show anymore, but under the hand of God, when you're honest with him, he can begin to draw you and guide you and support you. And there's this safety that God gives us under his care in his kingdom. Verse seven in the psalmist, let me read you the rest of this through verse nine. This is, this is the, the psalmist speaking about this new territory in the kingdom of God, having been honest with God, having spoken up. He says this, Therefore, all the faithful will make their prayers to you in time of trouble. When the great waters overflow, when the floods come in, they shall not reach them. God, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then the Lord speaks back in verse 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. 
I will guide you with my eye, with his vision. Friends, this is all really good news for us right here in the middle of Lent. You may not know the way out from the silent sin that entangles you or traps you. You may not know the way out. You may be absolutely and totally lost where you are. But I just want to tell you, there's a way out. You don't have to live there. There is actually a, a way out for you. There is one who can rescue you from that captivity and, and, and redeem you into the good life. He can bring you into that new territory of the kingdom of God where your life is now under his reign and rule. Jesus himself entered into the very darkness that you're living in so that he could lead you out of it. He knows what he's talking about because he's been there and he's been even deeper still. Jesus could lead us to the new life that God promises. You may be like that prodigal son who's really screwed it up, wandered off, or that elderly brother who doesn't realize just how lost he is as well, but you can still make things right before a heavenly father who is running with open arms to receive you, even now, even after everything you've done. He runs to you to receive you. But listen, you have to speak up. You have to be like that prodigal son and even the older brother. You notice they said something? They didn't just like die with the pigs or bury it and become embittered, but they actually spoke up. I mean, some ways one was kind of right, the other was kind of wrong, but they're both just like, this is my heart. This is what's really going on, dad. We have to speak up to the Lord. We acknowledge it before God. God, you see this. You see this in my life. You know my pain all too well. You know all of my sins. Even the ones I don't even know about, you know about. You know my pains, you know my doubts, you know all that I'm burdened with. And then wait. Wait for him. Wait for the Lord to instruct you, as the psalmist says, to teach you in the way that you should go. Lord, I don't know where to go, but here's all my stuff. And then wait. Wait for God. I wonder how our lives would bloom if we waited for God this way. If we refused the comforts, those exceptions, those entertaining things that kind of keep us up. What if we actually just confessed our sin and then waited for God? How our lives would open up like a flower and blossom. I wonder how God would lead us. Even now from this table this morning, we come to not only confess our sin like we just did this morning earlier, but then to receive that teaching, that food of life that will actually guide us and lead us at this table this morning. We come to eat the crops of the new creation, to put it in Joshua's language that we heard this morning, the food of salvation that only gives us, that only Jesus can give us through his body and his blood. I wonder if we would speak up receive this life that Jesus offers. I wonder how our lives would bloom. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.